welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. The message this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. Well, we've come to the last part of Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. We have seen that he prays that believers might be enabled by the Holy Spirit to know the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power toward us who believe. And on this last point, we began to think last time about this matter of the greatness of God's power toward us. This is a truth that we need to know, that we are dependent upon him in every way. We do not have our own spiritual power, but by the working of the Spirit of God, we have the enormous power of God at work in and through us. I talked last time about how great our need is for this powerful working of God in our salvation, in our sanctification, and our future glorification. If you are a believer, God has worked powerfully in you, and he will continue to do so until you are glorified together with Christ in heaven. From verse 19, Paul continues to describe uh, this power of God that works in us. And he uses the resurrection and exaltation of Christ to illustrate the nature of God's power. Uh, let's look again in Ephesians 1 and begin reading in verse 18. He says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us pray together. Father, I ask you this morning that you would open our hearts and minds to your word. Show us what you would have us to know. May our hearts be encouraged and challenged uh, as we hear your word today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning as we come to this matter of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ, and you look at this passage from verse 20 to 23, you at first uh, reading may seem like Paul gets on a tangent from his main thought about the powerful working of God in us. In verse 20, he says that God's working in us is like or according to his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And from there, he continues to write about the exaltation of Christ. Above all rule and authority, it seems like he got off topic a bit. Some might even think that Paul got on a rabbit trail. Well, you might not know that idiom. I've never known of any anyone uh, here in South Africa hunting rabbits. But in the rural areas in the United States, it's still quite common. Uh, when I was a boy, I went with my dad a few times. He had two beagle dogs that he would hunt with. And they would jump a rabbit out of his hiding place and get on the scent of his trail. But that trail would go this way and that way and then in circles and eventually make a big circle and that would lead back to the place where they started. And so a rabbit trail is, is getting off the main point and chasing it for a while before you get back to where and what you were talking about. If I'm not careful, I'll get on a, a rabbit trail talking about rabbit trails. But is that what Paul has done at the end of his prayer? I want you to see this morning that verses 21 to 23 is not a rabbit trail, but has a vital link to his prayer that we might know the powerful working of God in us. The first point of comparison that Paul makes about God's power toward us is the working of his great might in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so my first point is Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. And uh, how does the resurrection of Christ link to God's powerful working in us? And so if you're taking notes, my subpoint is a victory over death. 1.1, victory over death. Christ's resurrection shows that he won for us the victory over sin and the condemnation of the law, which is death. Not only physical and spiritual death, but eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore the curse of the law and died in our place for us who believe. We share with him in his death and we share with him in his resurrection. Paul describes our victory in Christ's resurrection when he comes for us in the rapture. In 1 Corinthians 15. And in verses uh, uh, 54 to 57, he speaks of our resurrection. He says, when this perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This victory that God gives us is not only victory over death at the resurrection, but is also victory in life here and now. And so sub point number two is victory in life. 
Because we, as believers, are in Christ, we share with him in life. We have the resurrection power of God at work in us through the dwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verses 19 and 20, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is the, the unity that we have, the, the oneness with Christ as believers. John would also write concerning uh, this victory in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so we have victory in life because of Christ, his death and resurrection. You see, we are to live day by day in the victory that Christ has won for us. For now, it is a struggle as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. But then when Christ comes for us, we will live in the fullness of his victory. Notice the ramifications of this victory as Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, the second point of comparison that Paul makes about God's powerful working in us is the working of his great might in Christ's exaltation. And so point number two is Christ's exaltation and our exaltation. Again, there's a, a vital link between the exaltation of Christ and his powerful working in us. In Ephesians 1, at the end of verse 19, he says, According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So he's describing Christ's exaltation to honor and authority. Uh, being seated at the right hand in the heavenly places is not a reference to uh, Christ's posture, but to the place of honor and authority at the throne of God in heaven. But the Lord is not sitting idle at this present time in his exalted position. The scriptures teach us that he functions as our high priest, interceding for us before the Father. Hebrews 4, uh, verses 14 to 16, 
says, Since then we have a great high priest, uh, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The power of God in Christ's exaltation is not something that we are able to physically see at this present time, but one day we will see it. One day we'll experience it. It'll be evident. John, you remember, was given a glimpse of the glory of the throne of God. He writes in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. He says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You see, when we get to heaven, the powerful working of God and the exaltation of Christ will be evident. And Paul says that Christ's exaltation is above all, all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And Paul will later in chapter 6 use similar description to describe Satan and all his demons. He writes about rule and authority and power. Notice Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, Satan used all his power to try to defeat Christ. And no doubt thought that he had won when Christ was crucified. But Satan is no match for God in his mighty power. Christ won the victory for us. And he's exalted by the mighty power of God. And Paul prays that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. I would also write in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The same powerful working of God is at work in us, through the person of the Holy Spirit. We must yield our will to His in obedience and say with Ephesians 
Chapter 6 and verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. If we go back to Paul's prayer uh, in Ephesians 1 verse 22, he adds that all and everything is subjected to the rule of Christ. He uses this phrase, all things under his feet. And that phrase is taken from Psalm 8 in verse 6. If you'd like to turn there, we want to look at that psalm, Psalm chapter 8, because it makes the vital link between the exaltation and dominion that man lost in the fall with what Christ, the perfect God-man, did to regain that place for us. Psalm 8 begins and ends with this phrase, How majestic is your name in all the earth. Look with me at verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Notice verse 3. It says, When I looked at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In other words, David is, is saying, in view of God's majesty and his glory that is displayed in his marvelous work of creation, David is amazed that God would think on man, much less to, to exalt him as he did in his creation. He goes on in verse 5 to say, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The heavenly beings, evidently a, a reference to the angelic beings. Verse 6 says, You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Although man still has an honored position in creation, he's made in the image of God, he's not able to exercise the dominion that God gave him in the beginning because of sin. Sin brought judgment upon man and the creation. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, we'll see there also how uh, the writer of the book to the Hebrews will make this connection. In, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, we see the quote from Psalm 8. And he shows how Christ, the second Adam, fulfills God's design for man and makes it possible for man to be brought into glory, into a union with Christ as a brother. Uh, let's, let's read from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. There he, right at the end of his quote from, from Psalm 8, where he says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then he explains, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
But he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In, in other words, he's, just, he's saying that in our current state, in our situation now, we don't see everything in subjection to man. But he goes on in verse 9 to say, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And he's referring to Jesus in his coming, in his incarnation. And, and he describes the situation or the state that, of Christ now. He says, go back and read verse from verse 9. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And he continues in verse 10 and 11 and says, For it was fitting that he, speaking of God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, us, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so he's describing Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And he goes on in verse 11 to say, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, or one source in God the Father. And he says that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And so what the writer of Hebrews is, is doing is showing that what the first Adam lost in his sin, he lost his dominion, his rule over the earth. The second Adam, Christ, the perfect sacrifice who, who died to redeem us and made it possible for us to again rule. And our, we will rule with Christ in his millennial kingdom on earth. Well, these truths require some thoughtful review, but I hope you can see that what God did in Christ's exaltation has a direct link to his powerful working in us. What he is doing and will complete in us, bringing us to glory. Go back to the end of Paul's prayer, in verse 22 and 23. You can clearly see this vital link between Christ's exaltation and the church. He says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ, who is the head over all things, is given to the church, for the church, and the church is his body. You see Paul using this head-body analogy to show the vital link between Christ and the church. You see, it's not just an organizational relationship, but an organic and living relationship. We cannot function without him as our head. And he, the head, functions through us, the body. And in that sense, we are the fullness of him who fills all and all. Now, the Net Bible translation note says, 
the ideal of all in all is either related to the, the universe, hence he fills the whole universe entirely, or it relates to the church universal, in other words, all, all believers. And so hence Christ fills the church entirely with his presence and power. And it seems to me that uh, this is um, the intent of the passage that Christ fills the church entirely with his presence and power. Well, in conclusion, we're often tempted to think that we cannot do what God wants us to do. What he's commanded us to do, he's called us to do. And it is true, we can't in our own power or ability. But we must remember that he is our head, our life, our power. As one author writes, there is given to the church and for the church's benefit a head who is also head over all things. The church has authority and power to overcome all opposition because her leader and head is Lord of all. End of quote. So we come to the end of this great prayer of Paul for the church and for us. May the Lord indeed give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. And may we go forth in his power. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in who you are. And Father, as we've contemplated this prayer that you've given us through the Apostle, Lord, our hearts are challenged by the thought that of your powerful working in and through us. Lord, we need you today. We need you, Father, to be able to live for you, to honor you, to resist the flesh and temptations in this world and the evil one. And so, Father, I pray that we might walk in the power that you've supplied us with through the, the indwelling Spirit of God. Uh, Lord, may these truths help us and encourage us in our, in our daily walk with you. May you be exalted. May you be honored, Lord, by our living. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.